Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Buck Anderson. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. I work in the areas of leadership development and work with our operations team. Uh, For the last year and a half, I've been working on our Creekside campus. I've been redeployed to primarily be the liaison between our elders and deacons and our church body and uh, the builders and the steel workers and the plumbers and the electricians that are going on out there. Uh, we got off to the worst possible start a construction project ever has. With After seven months of rain, we finally uh, got going, and we're at the stage now where it's um, the steel is almost completed. We'll be dried in in the office and sanctuary areas by the end of September. So things are progressing. Uh, thanks for hanging with us, but that's sort of where I've been. Uh, I've also been doing some, some studying on the, on the side and thinking about some things that uh, I've done really for the last 25 years. For those of you that, that know me, I love to do word studies. Uh, word studies for me is the best way to study the Bible. Now, there are many other ways, and I was a Bible college prof back in the day, but for my private study, I love to do word studies. I love to be reading a verse and find some word in that verse or two words in that verse that really sort of pops, right? And I, I've just, I just love that discipline of saying, well, I'm going to figure out what that word means. I may think I know what it means in English, but I want to try to figure out how did the Hebrew mind contemplate that word? How did the Greek mind contemplate that word? And take a look at those original words. Really been focusing on the subject of faith um, for the last couple of years in particular. And in that study, um, all 1,002 usages of the word faith in the Bible, I've looked them up. That's why I look the way I look now. I'm tired, you know. <laughs> One of the things that sort of pops when you look up at the word, you look at the word faith, you'll see that every once in a while, God chooses and I think is pleased to evaluate the quantity and quality of, of people having faith or people not having faith. In other words, he likes to grade our faith. For those of you coming back to school, you're very much aware that the contract that you have with your class and your teacher is that there's going to be grades issued. And you're going to attempt to earn a grade that allows you to A, pass the course and maybe boost up that GPA. Throughout all of our experience, there's ratings, there's grades, there's reviews, whether it's athletics or movies or hotels or food, there's all sorts of things that we're used to being graded upon, certainly at work, things of that nature. Well, God, that comes from God, by the way, who graded his own creation in Genesis 1. It was good. It was very good. It was not good for the man to be alone. He's used to grading. And he takes pleasure in being involved in our lives and evaluate how we're doing in our walk with him. And we're going to take a look at some examples where God has graded the faith of people throughout the scriptures. Um, Let's make sure that we understand that faith is the real big deal in in, in determining eternal destiny, is it not? I mean, the Bible uses the phrase believer or unbeliever wrapped around that word faith or believe. In the Old Testament, this was sort of the seminal verse that Paul will use in Romans 4 as well. Abraham believed God or believed in the Lord and he, the Lord, reckoned or counted it as righteousness. In other words, Abram was not right with God. His faith made him right with God. 
just way, just the way we might speak in in regular regular lingo. This is this is not right. This is this is this is jacked up. Something's wrong here. What was wrong was Abraham did not have relationship with God until he came to realize that God had provided for him up until that point, and Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted that as right. For thus in the New Testament, Paul preaches a gospel. I think it's important that we understand the elements, the base elements of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 is, is sort of my go-to. That's where I like to uh, learn the, the, the essence of the gospel. The gospel that I preach, Paul speaking, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, and our sins needed dying for, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scripture. Died for our sins, raised from the dead. If you have five seconds to tell someone the gospel, tell them that. Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Now for non-Christians, all that is necessary to become a Christian is to believe the gospel. Come to a point where you realize that I have a separate, I'm separate from God because of my sin. I accept Christ's payment for my sin. Christ died for my sins. I believe that he literally historically rose from the dead. It is truth. It is history. And that by believing that, God is pleased to place righteousness into your account, if you will, if you want to use accounting lingo. Now, if you're, uh, for, for a believer, recognize that an individual known as a Christian has come to the point where they have placed their faith in Christ. They do believe that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And that Christian now enjoys a permanent A-plus grade, if you will, in terms of their legal status before God. The fancy phrase is they're justified. It's a courtroom term. The judge puts his gavel down and declares you righteous. And that is a permanent seal of righteousness. Faith in Christ, the one who died for sins and was raised from the dead, results in this permanent right standing before God. Our faith in Christ places the believer into the family of God like being adopted. It is an irrevocable covenant that God himself promises to keep. The assurance of the covenant is the sure word of God, his promise to remain true in the covenant. However... No Christian is exempt from God's evaluation of our faith after justification. We don't get to place out of that. We don't, we don't get to not take the final. God is in the business of grading faith, evaluating his creation, evaluating his creatures. He takes great pleasure in participating with us in the maturation of our faith, and he's going to give us feedback, just like we get feedback anywhere else in, in our lives. No, Christian, is, uh, even God's grace does not exempt the Christian. We're, we're, we, we, we can tend to make our mistake, if you will, on the grace side. We can be grace junkies and just assume, well, God's grace has got me covered. I don't, I'm, I'm good. Just, I'll just step back and everything's fine with me. The Lord says, no, I'm going to participate with you. I'm going to evaluate you. I want us to get better together. So even God's grace does not exempt any Christian from God's evaluation of their faith after justification. But God's grace should motivate us. According to Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created for good works that we should walk in them. 
Remember the two previous verses before verse 10? We're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. So now that individual has, through faith, by, by, by grace, through faith, come to realize that Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead. And then he says, let's begin to participate. I've laid out good works for you. And I expect you and want to participate with you in those good works. And our proper response should be, yes, sir. I want to respond to you, the one who treated me so kindly, by participating in building your kingdom and being about the things of God. Okay? Now, before we get into this word faith a whole lot, let's take a look and make sure we understand the root concept of it. The word faith and believe both come from the same Hebrew word and the same Greek word, and it's a consistent term throughout the scriptures. We'd be in a world of hurt, wouldn't we, if faith meant something different in the New Testament than it did in the Old. It doesn't. In fact, all your New Testament authors first cut their teeth in the Hebrew language. They went to Hebrew school. They understood the Hebrew concept of the Old Testament, aman. Does that word look like anything you've seen before in English? We get our word amen directly from that word. Aman is the idea of soness, of sureness, of solidity. And the A changes to an E in, in, in Greek, and then we just copy the Greek, and that means let it be so. So it moves from it is so to let it be so. So when we tag on an amen at the end of our prayer, what we're saying is all that I just said, will you make that so? Will you make that real? Will you make that solid and sure? And again, the let is, I'm I'm letting you make the call, God, but I would like that to be so. The Greek equivalent is pistis or pistuo, the idea of, of, uh, of solidity. Really, the idea is the recognition of strength. The first thing that happens in a faith transaction is that we size something up based on its perceived strength or ability. You're doing it right now, as you said. I'm standing on a stage that I saw get built. And I know what's underneath it, so I wasn't nervous walking up here. You've been in this room before, or you've sat in chairs like that before, and you didn't notice anything wrong with them. You see that they're not laying over in the corner or all crumpled up. There's strength, there's solidity. The walls are holding up the roof. There are big air conditioners above us. There's all kinds of things that are solid that we recognize. You came to work here, in a, or came to church here in a, in a car, you drove, and you put your foot on a brake pedal. You assumed it would be solid and sure and strong. So faith is the recognition and realization of the strength or ability of the object of faith. And throughout the scripture, God is not always the object of faith. You look up all 1,002 times, it's not always faith in God. There's faith in all sorts of things in the scripture. It's an everyday common human phenomenon. The recognition of strength and then the reliance upon that, that object based on its perceived strength, perceived ability, okay? Uh, when's the last time you saw one of these bad boys? That's what they looked like when Scott and I were in elementary school. Late 50s, early 60s, that's what the report card looked like. And there's, look at all the delineations in there. It's not just a B, there's a B plus. Then there's a B and then there's a B minus. This poor guy didn't even make an A, I just, I just noticed that. It's, Okay, it's mine. I'll have to admit it. <laughs> the, the internet's a wonderful thing, man. You can just find all sorts of stuff. But the, the student had no problem recognizing, yeah, I understand. I'm trying to learn spelling and arithmetic, science, and how am I doing? 
There would have been six-week reports before that, and now the semester report card and the end-of-the-year report card. Oh, Dad, I'm sorry I made a D. Hey, Mom, I got a B plus. Okay. I, I, I was graded, and I responded to the grade. We're used to it. There's some report cards in the Bible, too. Let's take a look at a few of those. First one I thought was in Hebrews 11, referring to an Old Testament character, Abraham. We just saw him in Genesis 15. Notice, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested. There's, there's some college students in the room, I can tell. Any of you are going to be shocked if there's a midterm or a final or a paper due or reading assignments? Any of you going to be shocked that you're going to get a grade? You understand the deal. That's the same deal with us and God. We should expect him to evaluate us. When he was tested, Abraham offered Isaac in Genesis 22. Now, the life of the faith of Abraham is one of the best sections in the scripture from chapter 12 to chapter 22 of Genesis. Study just his faith life. And it's not always up. He's doing all kind of crazy things. He finally matures, believes God, figures that God would just have to raise Isaac from the dead, the author of Hebrews tells us. But he was going to do what God told him to do. When he was tested, in this case, he did well, he offered. By faith, Moses considered the reproach of Christ, I'll explain in a moment, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he, Moses, was looking for the reward. Now, my point in the verse is to let you see that the testee was looking to do well. He was looking for the reward of doing well. And, and the, the author is going to argue to the extreme that, that Moses would have taken, would rather have had the reproach of Christ. Now, Christ didn't reproach him, but he'd rather have the reproach of Christ than all the riches of Egypt. That's how highly elevated he saw God and his Messiah. Ephesians 1, Paul writes about the Ephesian church at large. For this reason, I too, having heard of, of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and a love for all the saints. So he's commending their love and their faith to, the, to their own church body and those that they encounter positively. It's a good report card. Okay? The Hall of Faith, if you've never read Hebrews 11, it's a wonderful place to let you see some Old Testament characters and how they participated with the Lord, whether you're Abel or Enoch or Noah. All throughout the Old Testament, there are people that are under pressure under a test, performing well. And he cites them. He cites them. They're like the honor roll, if you will, in school, okay? I wish all the reports were good. We have one last one, which is sort of the doozy that we always talk about. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy, notice, of your master. It wasn't that the person entered into heaven, it's that he or she entered into heaven and the master was joyfully receiving them, much like the father of the prodigal son joyfully received him when he returned. To give the father joy is the point point of the passage. And for us to remain faithful and true and to hear these words is what God wants for us. There's a bad moon rising. Not all report cards are good. And if we're going to be men and women of the whole word of God, we've got to understand that. We've got to try to figure out how God thinks and how he works. 
This is Moses. It's a rarely captured photo that I was able to find. (laughs) This is Moses in Numbers chapter 20. Now, in Exodus 17, he he struck the rock once and water came forth. This is a year and two or three months later. They've come through the Red Sea experience. They've set up camp at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. They've built the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. God was not able to enter the tabernacle, so we had to have a way for man to meet with God. So the laws throughout the book of Leviticus are set forth, and they're learning those laws, and they're learning the role of the priest. And then the book of Numbers unfolds, so-called in English, because they're counting up the men for war. In Hebrew, the name of the book is In the Wilderness, because it's a pretty wild book. The book of Numbers is oft-quoted in the New Testament. It's the set-up verse for John 3.16. It's the set-up for 1 Corinthians 10 that, that describes people not doing things well and introduces to us the concept of the doctrine of warning or the doctrine of admonition written to Christians to be careful not to follow after that behavior but rather pursue God. In Numbers chapter 20, Moses is having a tough day. Some six chapters earlier... The people of Israel had so rebelled, had so grumbled and griped that on an 11-day walk from Mount Sinai to the southern end of Israel at Kadesh Barnea, they they so grumbled and griped that God said, I'm sorry, you're forfeiting the right to enter the land. There's no heaven and hell kind of judgment here, but there are consequences to their behavior. There were consequences to their grumbling. How do you think that made Moses feel? Okay. Moses has been struggling with his anger quite a while. He'd killed a guy back in Egypt. Comes here to chapter 20. His people are not going to be allowed to come into the land. I'm the leader with Aaron of that group of people. Maybe Moses is feeling a bit rough this day as well. So what's going to happen is God's going to speak to him and say, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, and speak to the rock before their eyes. Speak to it this time. That it may yield its water, you shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let them drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, he, Moses, said to them, buckle up. Listen now, you rebels. Most good speeches don't start with that, right? You know, there's, this isn't going to go well if you're in the audience. You can just sense Moses' displeasure. Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Probably incredulously, he says that. Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice. He was told to speak to it. He he strikes it twice with the rod, and water does come forth. And the congregation and their beasts drank. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, there are a couple in this, the verbs are plural, the you is plural, because y'all, you guys, have not believed me. In this case, their faith waned. In this case, they did not consider God reliable, dependable, strong, and so. You did not believe me. You did not treat me as holy, as special, as distinct, as uncommon. In the sight of Israel, therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land. Moses, even Moses, suffered the consequence of weak faith at this time in his life. Does anyone here question whether Moses 
went to heaven or paradise after he died? Of course, of course we know he did. But the people of faith, people that are justified, declared righteous, we can struggle. We can and are prone to wander. We must heed that, recognize that, read and react to that reality by letting us see from the scripture that God has that category and how should I behave in light of the fact that he is evaluating me. If Moses was evaluated, how dare I think I could escape evaluation, right? Same guy written in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 has this on his record, okay? He keeps going in Deuteronomy 34. Now Moses went up to the plains of, of Moab, which is due east of Israel. If you know the land, Jerusalem, and then go due east to Jericho, and then on the other side of the Jordan River is the land of Moab. And they were coming up, had gone around Israel to come into the land that way. Joshua and Caleb are now leading the, the crew. The crew had uh, stayed another 38 years in the wilderness because of that verse that we saw, that not only you, Moses, won't be allowed to enter, but remember the nation also wasn't going to be allowed to enter according to Numbers chapter 14. So Moses is there. He's up on this hill. And the Lord showed him the land, all the land. I think it's a vision. I don't think you can see this far. But he, he shows him Ephraim and Manasseh to the north, which would become Israel later in the, in the prophets. And all the land of Judah to the south, either in the Negev to the far south. And all the way to the western sea, the Mediterranean. All the way across Israel. He got the full gamut. And he showed him this to say this. The Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore. And that's key to our understanding of God's covenant. He made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, I will give this to your descendants. Uh, have let you, and I've let you see it with your own eyes. But you shall not go over there. God can be quite the drama king, by the way, if you've not noticed. He sets this up so that Moses can feel the sting of his consequence. And for us as readers, we should follow suit. He gives them, let's say, a vision of this whole land. He lets them see the whole land and then says, you're not going there. So Moses, as we see, the servant of Moses died in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. This is one of the reasons I love the scriptures so much. If I'm God... If I'm a prophet, I'm not including this. It makes me look bad. My guy Moses, certainly going to heaven, but he he ended his life poorly. He never really defeated his anger problem. Murder earlier, striking the rock twice, suffered consequence. Not heaven-hell consequence, but that joy of the master perhaps was not his portion. And we get the scene like a movie Moses on that mountain while the people are getting ready to go into the land under Joshua and Caleb. It's sobering, I admit. Jesus has a few statements also. How is it that you have no faith, he says to the disciple. Where is your faith? Oh, you men of little faith. Every time the Lord Jesus evaluated the faith of the apostles, the the disciples, it was this phrase. In Greek, it's agia pistu, little faither. Stings, little hyphenated word, bam. 
he said to the disciples, because of the littleness of your faith. He doesn't say they have zero faith, but, you know, your muscles are kind of weak. They're little. And if, if I could get you to mustard seed side faith, size faith, we'd be doing well, okay? So the evaluations, admit, are uncomfortable, but they're also true because it comes from uh, the person that is the most true. This is the verse that really began my study two or three years ago on this whole idea of grading faith. Uh, This has some personal application with me that I'll share in a moment, but this is Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the church at Ephesus, the Ephesians, okay? They're mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3 in the seven letters, a church that Paul planted, okay? He writes to Timothy, my son, fight the good fight. Keep faith, keep a good conscience, which some, which meaning keeping faith and the good conscience, some of y'all have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, I am convinced that Hymenaeus and Alexander were Ephesian elders. If you know your Bible, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem for the Passover, as I recall. And I just love the humanness of it. He's kind of running late, so he sends an emissary to go talk to the Ephesian elders and says, Look, it's going to be easier if you guys meet me on my way rather than me coming to see you and then going back down. You have to get to Jerusalem by boat. Boats had schedules. It was going to be easier for them to meet him at a, at a town called Miletus. So he sent word, and Acts chapter 20 records that meeting. And he weeps, and he talks about the time he'd spent with them and raised them up in the faith. And then the plot thickens, because all of a sudden he says, from among your own selves, men will begin to speak perverse things and will lead others astray and will lead others astray. I'm convinced Hymenaeus and Alexander were two of those guys. Paul prophesying to the Ephesian elders that some of you guys are going to get off base theologically and you're going to have others follow after you. And you're going to cause harm and division in the church. For the Ephesians, it was race. Jew and Gentile, big debate there among the Ephesians. That's why the book of Ephesians talks about the barrier being knocked down and, and all those things. Did you see it? That little phrase right there just haunts me. They suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, let's, let's clean up the metaphor, okay? This culture would have been very familiar with shipwrecks. It was the airplanes of the day. It's how you got around. Think about what a big deal it is in our lives when a plane crashes. When a ship crashed, wrecked, it wasn't in the harbor. It was at sea. And what's the reason most of the time that a ship would wreck is, you know, failure to recognize signs, failure to provide well for your people, currents and shallow areas, uh, you know, the Titanic, icebergs, all sorts of things can cause shipwrecks and it's a calamity. Well, converting the metaphor, I think, Hymenaeus and Alexander, their life of faith was at sea and through improper tending to their walk of faith, of heeding warning, of failing to heed warning signs, they suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. 
I've known three men that I'm convinced this has happened to. And then we just hear of Joshua Harris a month ago, who claims I am no longer a Christian. The three guys that I know followed the Lord for decades. Not some camp high and then two weeks later back to normal. Decades of service. One a pastor. One a pastor's son. One started um, camps and um, clubs and conferences throughout the United States. And they sat with me and they told me I no longer believe in Jesus Christ. A couple of them were doctrinal changes. They didn't think they could trust the scriptures. And their mind quickly, they're smart guys. It took them really quick to, well, if I can't trust the scriptures, then how do I know Christ was raised from the dead? And you come along, Buck, saying you got to believe that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. I don't think, he, I don't think it actually happened. You know, some churches will want to spiritualize that. Well, it's just an awakening. You know, it's just a refreshed way of looking at God. No, as a dead man is now alive. Just what the words mean. And thousands and thousands of men and women have sought to either prove or disprove the resurrection of Christ. And if, if judged fairly from the facts in the Bible and outside the Bible, I believe a reasonable person will conclude that it's a historical event. It happened. But through false teaching, maybe personal desire to be free, I don't know, they left the faith. They no longer believe in Christ. Now, it's easy to conclude, I guess they were just never saved in the first place. It's already happening. If I'm going to get in trouble, I'm going to go all the way. Nine out of the ten statements made about Joshua and others, he was never saved. No way a Christian can reach this point. No way this can happen to a believer. I'm simply asking you to consider the category that perhaps it can. And it's a travesty. It's like a shipwreck. It's like a plane crash. It's like a car wreck where someone could literally die or is injured, maybe permanently. This verse, I can't get around. I don't know how to. And frankly, I don't know how others get around this verse. I don't want to get around this verse. I embrace this verse. This verse reminds me that my security with my justification, my certainty that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life is not based on my performance, although God wants me to perform well. It is based on the sure, solid word of God, his handshake, his covenant. If we, this is Paul writing to Timothy, it's kind of a preacher's we, as, we, as the seminary boys call it. We, you don't think Paul's saved? You don't think Timothy's saved? If we are faithless, Paul was concerned that he might be disqualified in 1 Corinthians 9. Was it guaranteed that he would always live correctly? He wanted to, but he was sober enough and wise enough to know that he's prone to wander. And he might be caught in the sin that can so easily entangle us and not cause joy to his master when we come into his presence. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Same Greek word. And faithless is just has the ah in front of it to negate it. Apistua or apistus, and he will remain faithful. The normal word for faith. Why, why does he remain faithful? Because he cannot deny himself. 
We talk about stuff God can't do. Well, it seems, he seems to say that he can't. It's not in his character to deny a deal that he made. Now, we know at the human level, we can break them. And if we make God in our image, that's what will happen theologically. We'll start to say, well, no, he's just speaking exaggeratively here. He's speaking in extremes. There seems to be two sides to this argument, okay? it's It's hard not to find folks that want to agree that, yeah, God will remain faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Well, if that's true, then it's also true that it's possible that we could be faithless. That's not an invitation to go be faithless. The point of the passage is to show the extreme power and sureness of God's covenant to us. He cannot deny himself. But if that right side of the formula is true and possible and certain, it seems to be intellectually honest that the left side would also have to be true. That we could prove to be faithless. Again, not a, an entree to do so, but as we look at the sure promise of God when it comes to the people of God as he evaluates our faith, that has to be a category that we have to consider. Now, as we wrap up, we've seen some people early in the, our little talk do well. We saw Moses and some others not do well. Again, get heaven and hell out of your mind. Just a grade. How am I doing in this particular test? The two that I want us to flee to and cling to and take out of here with us are the only... This just blows my mind. And I don't know why we don't talk about these cats more often. There are only two people to whom Jesus Christ said, you have great faith. That's a short list, man. It seems to me that if you're going to a faith conference, these might be the speakers, the two that he said that to. They had some insight into the Lord that I think is worth us gleaning. I call them the great faithers. Think about it again. Every time the Lord evaluated the apostles, the disciples' faith, oh, ye men of little faith, or little faith, little faithers, where is your faith, little faith, weak faith, mustard side seed faith, no faith. The only two that ever heard the commendation of great faith, mega in Greek, right, were the the great faithers. They're found in Matthew's gospel. And they are the two most least likely individuals you'll ever encounter. They're the Roman centurion in Matthew 8 and the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. Now, what's important to realize is that Matthew... Is the, Jewish, is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. It's full of Hebrew allusions, Hebrew word plays even, um, uh, references to the Old Testament, talks about Messiah. Uh, and the goal of the book is to present Jesus Christ as Messiah. And he's going to do that with a genealogy. Now, that sounds weird to us, but we would begin a job interview with a resume. All a genealogy is is a resume to show that you're qualified to be the Messiah because you had to be properly related to be a Messiah. To be the Messiah. So Matthew's going to present this. And, oh, and the, the, the fun of it is that the great faithers are Gentiles. Okay? This is like some longhorns walking in here and telling us what's going on. You know? What's up with that? Can't be. I love the doctrine of the least likely. God uses the least likely characters throughout the scriptures to do the greatest thing. And that should set us free because most of us probably feel, well, I'm, I'm more, more least likely than most likely. God uses the least likely because of what goes on in the heart and mind of these great faithers 
howbeit least likely folks to do great things. It goes on what's on the inside, not the outside. Now, so he's going to present the Lord Jesus as he begins Matthew 1. And we're not going to go through every verse, I promise you. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This will come back to help us in a moment. The son of David, the son of Abraham. If you know your Old Testament chronology, those, they're switched. Abraham is older than David. But you just didn't have to come from Abraham. You had to come from Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, then through Judah, and then through King David. Second Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant is cut, in which God makes a deal that says all proper Jewish kings, including the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, Masiach in Hebrew, will be of David. So David gets better billing here in the genealogy than Abraham, okay? The birth of Christ, uh, John the Baptist in chapter 3, the temptation of Christ in chapter 4 that, he, that shows that he can take on his enemies. And then he preaches a three-chapter sermon, okay? Sort of like me with 155 PowerPoint slides, you know? It's just something after something. And throughout that sermon, he is elevating himself by making very bold statements. This is a classic one. I say that unless, Jesus speaking, unless your righteousness surpasses that, is more than the scribes and Pharisees. Now, we read the Gospels, and, which kind of does a hat, hatchet job on the scribes and Pharisees, properly so. But to the Jews of the day, the religious Jews of the day, man, the scribes and Pharisees are a pretty big deal. Those are the guys hanging around the temple. They were the ones teaching the scriptures. And he comes along and says, you've got to be more right with God than they are? Holy mackerel. The result was when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. Notice even Matthew here at the end gives a grade of the Sermon on the Mount. How'd Jesus do? I'll give him a 10. The disciples, the people were amazed. Why? For he was teaching them as one having authority. Keep that word in mind. And not as their scribes. Okay? So he comes off the Mount and he runs into a, a, a Jewish man who has leprosy. He heals the individual and tells him to go to tell the priest because the priest will then get the word out that something's going on. Then he meets this guy. Another rare photo that we've captured. <laughs> Roman centurion. Soldier. A Gentile. Let me tell you some things about this guy. He is a Gentile and presumed enemy of Israel. Occupying Philistia or Palestine under the command of Caesar. He is a professional soldier, risen from the ranks of that of a seasoned officer, most likely a lifer in the Roman army. Roman army at that time was divided into 25 legions. Each legion had about 5,000 guys, and they were further divided into 60 centuries. Now, it's weird to us, but a century in their army lingo was 80 guys, and the centurion was over 80 foot soldiers. He's a crucial member of the Roman army, having traveled the world, most likely for Rome's glory. He is stationed, most likely, here in the north, where Jesus' headquarters for his northern ministry was housed. He's been sent to this, what he most likely would have thought to be a dirty, dusty outpost named Philistia. Most likely, he was assigned to the Roman garrison at Capernaum, or Kafir Nahum, the village of Nahum, in the northern region of Palestine, that region known as Galilee. 
He's primarily responsible to put down the civil unrest that would occur with an invading army, obviously, and, but mainly probably to keep open the north-south routes. There were two of them. For Israel, about the size of our state of Vermont, is a crucial land Lego piece. It's a crucial le- land link between Asia, Europe, and Africa. And unless you traveled the sea by the Mediterranean to the west, you came through Israel uh, to go to those continents. The centurion is a man's man. He is skilled in the art and savagery of war. He has seen many men die, often at the tip of his own sword. He is tough. He is battle-hardened. He lives in a world of rank and order, discipline, and authority. So we see him meet the Roman soldier. He enters Capernaum. A centurion came to him and said, entreating him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed, suffering great pain. Notice Jesus' response. I will come and heal him. I love the efficiency of this verse. We're going to come back and pick it apart in just a moment, but don't miss that. I've got a problem. I'll take care of it. But I think the key word is come. I will come and heal him. Watch how the soldier thinks. The centurion answered and basically said, no, let's don't do it that way. He says, it's not right. It's not worthy. My grandmother from Ole Miss would have said, it ain't fitting. It ain't fitting, Bucky. You shouldn't do it that way. It's not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. This is a, a captain who'd be like a company in an American army parlance. This is a captain entertaining a five-star general. It's just not right that the general comes to visit the captain. It's done the other way around. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. Hmm. So something about the word of the Lord Jesus has captured the centurion's thoughts. And then he tips his hand. For I too, the soldier speaking, I too am a man under authority. With soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go and he goes. And another one, come here and he comes. And another one, do this and he does it. He didn't even say please. He didn't say thank you. This is classic military dispatch. Quick, efficient orders meant to be understood and carried out. That's the world in which he lives. And it takes one to know one. A man of authority can recognize another man of authority. That's what's going on. And Jesus heard this. He marveled. What a great word. How great it would be to cause the Lord Jesus Christ to marvel. Apparently we can. A Gentile soldier did it a couple thousand years ago. Anyway, he marveled and said, to those that were following, including the disciples, truly, truly, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I can't prove it, but I wouldn't be surprised at that last line if he didn't go, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. <laughs> Ever the teacher, right? Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, let it be done as you've believed. Servant was healed that very hour. Let's use some observational Bible study techniques real quick. Okay, same verses we just looked at. I've dulled part of them, highlighted the others. Problem, servant lying paralyzed in pain. Jesus, I will come and heal him. Okay, I don't know if that, if, 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 if that was you. If you read Luke's gospel, by the way, it, he's probably 20 miles away. That's why Jesus says, I will come to him. The, the boy is not with him right there. 
I will come and heal him. I'm going to take that as a deal. I'm going to, I'm hailing a cab. Let's get in the car. Let's go. Centurion, great faithers see things differently. They see things the way they really are. And the way they really are is that space and time and distance is no barrier to the Lord Jesus Christ. So your physical presence, 20 miles away in the same room that my servant or slave who's lying paralyzed in great pain, is nothing. And that's why he says, it's not only not right for you to be here, but the key is your word has the authority to bridge those 20 miles instantly and bring about healing. That's thinking differently. That's reacting to the reality of the great strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great authority that he has. I too am a man of authority. I recognize another. I say to people, get it done and it gets done. How much more will your word have its way? He marveled, great faith. Quick, easy encounter actually, but the huge insight that he has into the authority of Jesus Christ. Think about authority as a little thread running through the tapestry of the book of Matthew, really the whole Bible. In chapter 7, at the end, Matthew gave that evaluating statement. He spoke as, as if he had authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees, but Jesus acts like he's, he's the boss of the applesauce, right? This is how the Bible works. Nine verses later, he illustrates the authority point of Matthew seven twenty nine with a story of a soldier, a Gentile, least likely individual, saying the same thing. Matthew saw the authority. A Roman centurion sees the authority. We, the readers of the scripture, now see how the Bible illustrates itself, how it makes its points. And finally, sorry, shouldn't have jumped there. The Bible ends on an authoritative note. We're pretty familiar with verse 19. Remember verse 18? Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me from the Father, obviously in heaven and on earth, and then our more familiar go, therefore go and make disciples. The setup for the phrase to go and make disciples is that the authority of God the Father has been handed to the Lord Jesus Christ to tell us what to do. And we, like his word, should do his bidding. The soldier teaches us about authority. He teaches us the simple understanding that the Lord Jesus Christ has all authority to bring about a world under his rulership. And he's allowed us and wants us to participate with him. Well, after this, things uh, get a little dicey for the Lord and his disciples. Things progress to a huge showdown in chapter 12 where the Pharisees size up the ministry of Christ and conclude that he derives his power from Satan. Then it happened. The headlines would have read, Ministry of Christ reaches all-time low for John the Baptist, was cruelly beheaded in prison. The disciples must have been rocked to their core. Jesus responds by withdrawing to spend some time alone. He then heals all the infirm that followed him. He feeds 5,000. He walks on water. He rebukes the Pharisees for their traditions, which invalidate the word of God. And then for the only time in the ministry of Christ, he leaves Palestine. He leaves Israel. He heads northwest to what would be modern-day southern Lebanon, to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and he meets another person of great faith. Known to some as the Phoenician woman, 
in Mark's gospel, she's so-called. But fittingly, in the book of Matthew, she's known as the Canaanite. She is a descendant of Canaan, long cursed ago in Genesis chapter 9. The very mention of her name would have sent chills down the spines of the disciples as they encounter her. Noah had cursed Canaan in Genesis 9 as he foresaw the grotesque debauchery that would come from their religion. Her ancient kin included the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, all age-old enemies of Israel. Her ancient cousins were among the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. She lives in the ancient land of her people, modern-day southern Lebanon, known biblically as the district of Tyre and Sidon. On the Mediterranean, in this area here, he's come from here to there for a little R&R, or so we think. Genesis 10 informs us that Sidon is the firstborn of Canaan. Tyre, by my count, is the second most cursed city in the whole Bible, second only to Babylon. Tyre was renowned for its excessive luxury as it had become rich from a vast commerce conducted from its port. It was a combination of our Las Vegas and New Orleans of its day and the playground for rich merchants and weary sailors. Her mere presence would have certainly caused the disciples a great deal of discomfort. We knew that the Canaanite had been the ruination of ancient Israel. The Old Testament often simply says the Canaanite was still in the land. Joshua never expelled them. David had to deal with them years later. Solomon's many wives had brought Canaanite religious practices into the king's palace and eroded the moral fiber and spiritual fiber of the nation. Canaanite religion was all about money, economic prosperity. It's pantheons of God's promised good crops, lots of kids, lack of war, health and wealth to those that would bring sacrifice to Baal, to Molech, to Asheroth. And so Jesus goes away, withdraws, and encounters this woman. We'll look at her quickly, for her story is as simple as the soldier's. A Canaanite woman comes out of that region, begins to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, O son of David. Tuck that away. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. The centurion had someone else that was infirmed. She has someone else that's infirmed and is there doing their bidding. Jesus didn't answer. Ever the master teacher, imagine this play going on. Jesus, the woman, the disciples. He doesn't say a word. His disciples kept coming to him and kept asking, saying, send her away, Lord. She's shouting out after us. I think they're sort of in vacation mode. We don't have time for such a thing, let alone a, a Canaanite. And finally, uh, he's going to respond, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I don't think that worked for her. I, she doesn't really have anything to say. She just comes before him, bows down and says, Lord, help me. So he changes metaphors. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now be careful. He's not calling her a dog. She's going to use the same kune word. We get our canine from this concept. She's going to use the same word for little dog in the next verse. He's just changed the scene to dinner time. And in every culture, you don't take the kid's food and give it to the dog instead. And that's all he's saying. And yes, Lord, but even... The dogs feed on the crumbs which lie under the master's table. That's it. 
O woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as your wish. Let's pick it apart real quick. They're in foreign country. Canaanite land. Probably expecting trouble. She's a Canaanite. And she calls him Lord. Could be just a term for servant or a master. But son of David, hard to spin that. That's right out of 2 Samuel 7. Remember the genealogy? Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Somehow she knew. He doesn't answer her. He lets the plot thicken. The disciples, not their finest moment, wanting her to go away. And he uses the sheep image. She just personalizes it and says, no, come on, help me. Not good to take children's bread. She goes, okay, I got that scene. I understand it. Mom and a dad, maybe a teenager, 10-year-old, 5-year-old, and a baby in a high chair. Canaanites actually had domesticated animals in their home. The scripture itself confirms that. And you don't take the children's bread and throw it to the dog. So she, she takes in the scene and goes, okay, wait. What about the crumbs? Could I have a crumb? Because if the crumb came from a loaf that you baked, that's good enough for me. She thinks differently. Great faithers recognize the reality of the largeness of the person with whom they're dealing. They read and react. They recognize and realign based on the reality of who the Lord Jesus is. That's why we always should be keep learning of him and pushing forward. She teaches us about sufficiency. The Canaanite was author- or the soldier was authority. He's a yes sir kind of guy. I think her great need gave her a new perspective. I don't need the loaf. Wait, just a crumb. Her need was so great that a crumb was something of worth. That's a humility and a change in perspective that allows for these kinds of faith insights, right? And what a great faith evaluation to have your faith evaluated as great. You can chart it any way you want to. They both end up with insights that are stuff for us to wear this week. When you get dressed tomorrow, Put on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are doing his bidding and his authority like a soldier has come to you and it says, go and make disciples. You wake up and say, yes, sir. And I will recognize the other authority structures in my life and I will participate and I will lead and I will submit as necessary. And also put on his sufficiency. He's enough. We don't need one more conference. We don't want one more book. We don't need more. We've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, Ephesians 1 3. Just take inventory and recognize that He is sufficient. He's enough. I'm going to end with this picture, which frankly haunts me to death. It's 1932, RCA building, later became the Comcast building. It's Rockefeller Center now, 30 Rock. New York City, 50th and 5th, if you know the city. It's taken, pictures taken from the southeast side. So behind them is Central Park and the Upper West Side. Now, these are workers, steel workers, iron workers that were posing. It was, it was shown in the newspaper as they were trying to attract renters' offices or apartments. And they're just on their break, you know. I mean, got smoking a cigarette. I'm not advocating smoking. I'm just describing what's happening. They're 832 feet in the air, I forgot to tell you. 
832 feet in the air. I'm nervous being four feet above you guys, okay? (laughs) You see any nets? OSHA is 40 years away. Seriously. (laughs) They're just sitting there. How did they get to look so calm? Well, they didn't start off on the 83rd floor. They laid the first course. They drove the rivets in. They made sure it was true and plumb and and strong. And then they built the girders going up and tied those in. And they knew the strength and weight and density of each one of these steel beams. And they knew it was more than enough to handle my weight. I shouldn't be nervous about anything. That's what great faith looks like. Authority and sufficiency. Father, thank you so much for the privilege we've had today to think about these things. Pray that you might give us opportunity outside this place to uh, ponder these truths, to make sure we recognize them to be a part of our very lives. Help us, Lord, to do that. Help us to understand that the things of God are not to be taken lightly, that you are, in fact, working with us, evaluating us. We want to make you joyful, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the Christian life is meant to be led together. If we're going to go in our walk of faith together, let's get connected to ourselves here at church. So in the fellowship hall right now, you can go and see all the things that are offering, that we're offering. If you're new, you can go there. There's all sorts of signs to direct you. But if you need a Sunday morning group, a midweek study, marriage classes, there's all opportunities. The doors are open. Uh, Go ahead and check that out. Thanks for putting up with me. We'll see you next week.